Hi there, my name is Dana Levin, and welcome to the Exploration Medicine Podcast's field series. This podcast deals with the history, current events, and future of exploration medicine, and our field series takes the mic into the wild to talk to people currently providing care in these remote and extreme environments. This interview was recorded in November, summer of 2017. So, uh, I guess it's good afternoon, but... It is good afternoon. It's good night on the, the East Coast of America. All right, good night, America. Um, <laughs> tell me who you are. Uh, I'm Chris Martinez. I'm the lead physician for McMurdo Station Antarctica. And uh, it's the summer season, 2017-2018. So, how did you end up here? Well, um, the, the smart-ass answer is I got on a plane and then landed. No, apparently that went pretty well. It went pretty well. We didn't crash. The ice didn't break. No, um, my military career was winding down in 2015, and I was getting ready to punch out after 23 years. I was trying to decide if I wanted to do expeditions and work or just take the year off and go climb and have adventures. You know, military life takes a lot of your time away, so I had a lot of catching up to do. So I looked on some job boards, thinking, oh, maybe I'll go to Africa again or you know, something exotic, and I saw this job for Antarctica pretty cool. Still not sure I wanted to work, so I just emailed uh, the guy at UTMB, Jim McKeith, uh, who's my boss now. He said, hey, what's up with this? What, what's it require? What, what's the deal? And he wrote back. He said, oh, thanks, Ann. Your background sounds great. You got a lot of experience, but we're booked up for the next two years. Put an application in. We'll get you in sometime. All right. Thought nothing of it. Started making my plans for climbing. Uh, around the end of November, I get a phone call from this guy. Hey, are you available in March? <laughs> I'm like, I, I am. Put an application in. Sent, right? Same day, sent. The next day, hey, can you do a Skype interview today? I'm like, well, I'm in the middle of clinic, but how about lunchtime? He's like, sure. And so I, uh, in uniform, got on Skype, sitting there, we're talking, meeting everybody at UTMB, finding out about the program. And about 45 minutes into it, I said, I got to go, excuse myself. And the look on their face, like, you're ending the interview? That's not usually how it works right? Because prospective employers <laughs> like to, but I had clinic and I really like to run my clinic on time. You know, the patients are showing up on time. I want to get them in and out as fast as possible. So I went back to work. Uh, I got a call the next day say, hey, you want to fly down uh, for a formal interview in a couple of weeks when you get out of the military? I'm like, sure. So finish up my military service, pack up my house, move everything into storage, fly over to Texas. And, uh, sitting around at about 8.30 in the morning, and Jim McKeith comes out, and he's like, okay, well, you know, we're just waiting for everybody, but I got donuts and juice and whatever. So we're waiting about 9.30. He's like, well, some people are running behind, but we're good. I'm like, oh, well, where, where do you want to do this interview at? Oh, no, we don't really need to interview you. We just want to make sure there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently uh, the doc they had slated for the Palmer position that I ended up getting was super doctor on paper, was rheumatology, internal medicine, family practice, like super achiever. But it turned out she had really advanced rheumatoid arthritis, which is not very conducive to surviving well in Antarctica, um, especially as the sole medical provider, no support staff, no anybody to help you out in Palmer. And no use of your hands. Well, yeah, especially if it's really cold and you're all swan neck deformed. But uh, she actually... Uh, made a request to UTMB that under the Americans with Disabilities Act, a reasonable accommodation for her in this position would be to send a medical technician to help her. To which Jim said, it's the Americans with Disability Act, not the Antarctica Disability Act, and uh, we're not going to send an extra person and risk, you know, blah, blah, blah. So she's out, I'm in, 
went to Palmer. Cool. So tell me a bit about how, how medicine in Antarctica works. Like, where are we right now? How's the, how's the structure of medicine here? So the best way to think of it is to think of yourself as on a very large boat. I mean, that's the best analogy, right? Okay. Um, we have the state, so we have McMurdo Station. Um, summertime, it can support up to 1,300 people. Plus, we also coordinate with all the field camps, which will have two to 300 people, and then when they're fully up and running, plus all the vessels in the area. But we're basically running a large ship so that other people can come and go. So we're not doing tourists, we're doing you know scientists and grantees that are coming down here to study and do different things. Having said that, we're very isolated. You know, ship can actually just, you know, go on wherever they need to, find a port, get help. Here, medical care is medical care. Um, we're set up as an urgent care clinic primarily, um, but we end up mostly doing primary care because that's, mm. you know, medicine is still medicine. And just like in wars, just like in the States, you know, slips, trips, falls, coughs, colds, nausea, diarrhea, normal run-of-the-mill stuff still makes its way down here. Um, but we're also set up to do emergency medicine, critical care, and you know, life-saving procedures if we need to. So that's kind of what we have available down here. Having said that, there are a lot of constraints, as you know, because you've been down here. <laughs> um, so the, the setup down here is me as lead physician, and so I coordinate with all the other supervisors, ASC, NSF, UTMB, to make sure, one, the people that are coming down have what they need, two, it's safe for them to come down if they have waivers or, you know, we have a couple guys down here that have um, defibrillators and pacemakers, and so we had the magnets down here. Um, there's a few people down here that we have to monitor for their illnesses. So getting all of that set up ahead of time so everybody can come down, have a safe and uh, fruitful, you know, journey down here and accomplish what they need to, that's kind of my job. And then, you know, I see the patients uh, as I can and then, you know, pull call with everybody else. Then we have my PA, Mike Dorr, who's uh, ortho PA and emergency medicine PA by training and a junior dentist by trade down here in Antarctica. Hmm because not only do we take care of medical problems, we also have to take care of dental problems. We don't have a full-time dentist. So he's not trained in dentistry, he just picked that up he while being down here. He picked it up. So part of our training before we come down here, we get a week of orientation, you know, how the program works, historical, blah, blah, blah. Mostly paperwork, what to fill out, when to fill out. Gotcha. But we get a few days of dental training with um, some of the dentists up at UTMB where we learn how to do emergency procedures, you know, put fractured teeth back on, make uh, crowns if somebody needs a crown, do cavity fillings, you know, things that we can do to temporize something, you know, maybe until we can get them off to Christchurch or until our dentist actually shows up for the month of January and can fix them. Um, he really took to it. He's very, very good at it. I mean, he'll... If he's not in his office when he's slow, he's in the, the dental suite doing so. He made a tray of his own teeth the other day just to practice. Um, <laughs> it's a pretty good impression. So that's Mike. Uh, his wife, uh, Megan, is our nurse administrator. She runs the clinic. I'm just in charge, um, but she makes things go. Couldn't do this job without her. Um, she does everything from our ordering supplies, actual nursing duties, you know, interacting with the other agencies to make sure we have what we need, reminding us, hey, you need to be here, you need to be there. Um, she's pretty much the heart of the clinic. Then we have Tien, our pharmacist. Um, he is a fantastic pharmacist, so he down, he manages everything for us, makes our life easy, actually does real pharmacy work instead of just counting pills. He actually goes through all the interactions. One of the tricks in Antarctica is we don't have a full pharmacy like we would in the States. And by that, I mean, we have a very robust supply of meds in, in all categories, but not the number of drugs we would normally, like. We want a specific drug for a very specific thing. In the States, we just ask for it. Here, 
tricky, right? So Tian will get to work putting his brain, you know, in overdrive to figure out a good solution. And then we have, who am I missing? Oh, Colin, new to the team. Um, he's a critical care flight paramedic. So he's, a, he's our flight nurse. Um, great guy. Uh, first time we've actually hired a paramedic to do that job. Um, and he is gung-ho. He's all about training, 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 teaching, training, teaching, and let's take care of the patients. Uh, in addition to that, we have you, our NASA Aerospace Medicine resident. Mm -hmm. We have our full, our you know, full-fledged NASA doc, and then we have an Air Force flight surgeon, Air Force flight medic, and an Air Force flight nurse. So we're managing all those. That's a lot of people. Yes. Do you find that you need that many people for 1,300? Or um, not yet. We will. It's um, still early in the season. As the field camps kick up and as the vessels start coming in. Mm. There's never been a season where there hasn't been a critical patient sent out. Um, also, when the remember, we can also take tourists. They will come wandering through the station as the cruise ships start to come in. And so once they're on the station, we're kind of responsible for them too. Um, it's not that we necessarily need that many people, but if you imagine a busy clinic day in the States under best of circumstances, and then you imagine a busy clinic day here, which we haven't actually had yet, even though you guys have been working really hard, we do, um, because the flight surgeon may actually be out taking care of the pilots and the flight crews. Uh, Colin may be off on a medevac, and then the rest of us are here you know, running the clinic, manning the clinic, making that all happen. Could it be done with less? Probably. Could it be done as well? Probably not. Hmm. Okay. So, no, that's interesting. Just cutting in here for a little bit. While much of what the McMurdo team deals with is routine, they have to be this large for several reasons. So first, as we've discussed in earlier episodes, Mass casualty events do occur. They don't happen often, but it's really helpful to have more skilled providers around when they do. The second reason is patient transport, and this is what Chris is referring to here. McMurdo is the reserve medical team for all the field camps, other U.S. bases, and some of the Antarctic vessels. Anytime a sick patient needs to be transported to McMurdo or off the ice, it takes a care provider out of rotation. So since McMurdo has to be staffed, this means there need to be extra providers to handle this eventuality. The third reason is that military personnel must be treated by a military physician in the United States. So all Air Force personnel need a military physician to be present on base to handle them. The fourth reason is that if the doctor is incapacitated, like the Russian 1960s expedition, then there needs to be someone able to take over as a backup. Um, do you find then, so you're mentioning a lot of the issues that you deal with are mostly primary care, urgent mm -hmm. care, colds, slips, yep. falls, that kind of stuff. Is there, what else do you deal with? As far as medicine? Yeah. So the, the next big thing we deal with is usually traumatic stuff. So uh, our flight surgeon had a head injury a few weeks ago. Meaning he had a patient with a head injury. And we don't have a CAT scanner, so it was a long night of hourly neuro checks, just like old-fashioned doctors do. Hmm. Um, and that's always a concern because without a CAT scanner, you have to make a decision. Do I need to get this person out? What am I going to divert to do that? Because we can't just put them on a plane because, one, the weather may not allow planes to take off or land. Two, there might not even be a plane here. Three, how am I going to take care of them until then? Four, what type of plane is it? What type of resources am I going to have? And then who's going to take care of them when we get them to New Zealand? Um, so head trauma is one of the big things we worry about, and it happens four or five times a year here. Um, most of the time they send them off to Christchurch because of a worsening neurologic function um, for whatever reason. You know, the, we don't like to keep things here and say it'll probably be all right. You know, 
keeping them in an ER in the States where we can just ship them up to an ICU or get a neurosurgeon in, piece of cake. Not so much here. Um, other interesting things, belly pain is particularly challenging here. We have our x-ray, we have our ultrasound, we have basic labs, but vague abdominal pain. What does it mean? It's probably normal run-of-the-mill stuff, you know, ovarian cyst, constipation, bloating, you know, some sort of weird viral illness. But the one thing that keeps us all awake about belly pain is females that might have ectopic pregnancies. So that's the mm -hmm. one thing, if you were to go around and ask everybody about ectopic pregnancies, you'll see their face just pucker up really quick. Hey guys, another clarification here. Ectopic pregnancy means a pregnancy that occurs outside of the uterus. Now this is life-threatening because the mother now has a rapidly expanding piece of tissue that squeezes, compresses, and tears her other organs. If it's caught early enough, the growth can be stopped or the tissue removed, but this has to happen quickly because it can go from stable to life-threatening in a matter of minutes to hours, and in that case, it requires emergency surgery. Um, so that's one thing we always keep in our mind. Um, they've had a couple in the past, not ruptured, but got them out. Belly pain, that's probably the one I would worry about most here because trauma is easy. Disturbing. Yeah, trauma is yeah. easiest. Now, do you find that like you know, trauma or belly pains, all these things may end up being surgical emergencies. Is that something that happens down here? And how do you handle that? So we absolutely do not want to do actual surgery down here. Minor procedures, sure. You know, you need an abscess drain, great. You know, you want a ganglion cyst taken out or you need moles removed, whatever. Minor sure. procedures, piece of cake. We don't want to have to open up anybody and do invasive procedures. One, we're not surgeons. I've got some surgical training. We've all got surgical training. We're not surgeons though. Yeah. Um, could we do it with guidance from uh, UTMB? Probably. Would we do it well? Hopefully. It's just an extra risk. Yeah, it's a big risk. Plus, um, remember, we don't have a critical care staff. It's just us. So if we're all involved in some major, you know, operation, and something else goes wrong on the station, or some illness breaks out, we got to take care of that too. Two. The risk of infection goes way up down here because we don't have a proper OR. Um, even though our surgical kits are sterilized and we can sterilize, it's not an OR. We don't have circulating nurse, we don't have scrub nurse, we don't have all the normal stuff you'd have in the States. So we do our best, but we would not like to open anybody up. That yeah. would be truly heroic stuff, last-ditch last effort. But you mentioned that you could, um, not necessarily in a surgical case, but in any case, mm -hmm. do... Um, Telemetric guidance? Yes. So we do have dedicated lines straight to UTMB, um, and we can get any consult we want within an hour if it's an emergency. Mm. Um, so we would just tell the station manager, he'd tell IT, they would route all the bandwidth for the station to us so we could have real-time communications, video, and they could talk us through anything. So you, you would have a, a camera and a TV screen and yep. basically do Skype surgery? Pretty much. Interesting. Mm. It, it's possible, not something we want to do though. Well, no, I mean that's that's what the whole or qualification process. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you find that you have you ever had to use that that capability? Um, I had to use it at Palmer um, for a site case, actually, not not for a medical case, but okay. for a site case. I needed this person was just very bizarre, um, was having trouble adjusting to the darkness and then that triggered some sort of psychosis but she was still functioning okay doing her job okay but just not interacting like she used to hmm. wasn't drinking was sleeping a lot more 
And so, of course, you're like, well, I don't know what to do. I don't want to start her on medicines if I'm missing something. So we started doing counseling, you know, with the psychiatrist every week and got him on a good regimen. And she went on to do well. She finished out the season. But okay. Yeah. She was just uh, acute psychosis NOS, followed up with a history of depression. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and do you find, like, uh, along those same lines, do you mm-hmm. find that there's a lot of psychiatric issues that happen on the ice? They do. Um, they often go underreported. So you can imagine 24-hour sunlight probably predisposes a lot of people to kind of a hypomanic state. And if you don't yeah. go to bed and don't sleep, you're going to be super hypomanic. Um, you see that self, if you look around here, once the sun's up 24-7, the drinking goes up exponentially hmm. because people are trying to calm down, relax, go to sleep. Because most people, especially in their 20s down here, forget that this is still a job. And, hey, I've got sunlight. Let's just stay up and do stuff. And so they'll, you know, pull all-nighters, get like two or three hours of sleep, and then go to work. And then next night, same thing, same thing. So they'll drink to help fall asleep. Interesting. So there's a lot of, like, insomnia, over-energizing. Are there other ways that you would recommend people manage this, having been down here for a while? Yep. So I'm a chronic insomniac ever since I went into medicine. Oh, welcome to the club. Yep, welcome to the club. Most of us are. So, no, it's the same thing I preach to my patients that I do. So have your set routine. Bedtime every night, same time, you know, plus minus 15, 20 minutes. Same routine before you go to bed, no light, and stick to it. Um, you don't stick to it, you're not going to do well. Yeah, it's you're very gonna, easy it's, here to forget. Oh, it's, it's very easy. Um, sometimes, well, you know, I'll watch TV here in the clinic after hours and all right, it's getting late. I should walk back across to the dorms and you go outside and you're like, oh, it's really nice. I should go for a hike. But then you realize it's midnight. <laughs> you got to be at work in a few hours. So you got to force yourself not to do it. Yeah. No, I've, uh, I've even had minor versions of that experience myself. No, it's an easy trap to fall into. Do you, are there other conditions that you think are kind of are specific to the, the polar regions in Antarctica that you've run into or, or that you've heard of? Well, um, I don't know specifically what you're looking for, but there is an interesting thing. So people on testosterone, so men on testosterone, there's there's a known predisposition predisposition for a certain subset of them to become polycythemic. Now, polycythemia is not a condition that is increased or made worse by the Antarctic region, but it is interesting to find it in Antarctica because it's not something you would normally think to encounter. Polycythemia literally means many cells in the blood, polycy. And that, in this case, specifically refers to red blood cells. It's a condition that makes the blood physically stickier, and it can have a lot of complications related to that, increasing the risk of clots, pain, that kind of thing. Um, Ultimately, heart failure if it's let to go too far. And while it's not specific to Antarctica, it is something that's unusual and kind of hard to pick up on unless you're looking for it. So even though people are heavily screened and you're in a remote environment with ostensibly healthy people, strange things do happen. Hmm. That happens down here more than the statistical um, findings would suggest in the general population. Uh, when I first got here, we were bleeding the guy every two weeks. Interesting. Yep, taking a pint off every two weeks. Um, and his crit was still hanging out in the mid-50s every time we did so. Um, but the risk there, okay, he's probably fine um, as long as he's hydrating. But then if he has to get on a plane or a helicopter and go somewhere, mm-hmm. what is he going to do? Is he going to stroke out? Is he going to clot up somewhere? What are we going to do? So that's a concern down here. So we keep track of those. Anybody that's on testosterone, we'll have them come in, you know, once every month or so. And then if they're stable, we'll just leave them alone. But it's something that you wouldn't think that you'd have to look for, that you have to look for. Yeah, that's Um, interesting. 
then trying to manage just regular routine illnesses. So somebody with a thyroid condition that's newly diagnosed that somehow got a waiver and ends up down here and they're not stable on their meds. Well, it's a lag time, you know, from the time we can get the labs and send them off to Christchurch and then adjust their medicines. And then we only have Synthroid, so we don't have any T3 or mm. any of the combinations. So it's interesting. Okay. Um, just a couple of more questions. Yeah. Here. We'll switch tracks. Um, so you're mostly focused on McMurdo. You told us about Palmer. The other station the NSF runs is at South Pole. Yep. Do, you, do you have any interactions with them? Uh, I do. We uh, talk to South Pole doctors three or four times a week, on a, even before, unless we have a medevac, then we're talking to them three or four times a day. Gotcha. Um, but, yeah, we keep track of what's going on up there because, one, we're their lifeline, right? Without us, they won't be able to do anything. Uh, if they need to medevac somebody out, well, they got to come here first. Why is that? Um, because most things that happen at South Pole, so they have a higher, you know, sphincter factor, like, oop. Um, because they're at high altitude and they're so remote and the temperatures are always bad and the winds are, you know, hit and miss. If somebody is going downhill, they're going to err on the side of getting them out just in case. Right. So most of the time they'll come here first and get an eval and like, oh, well, it's something we can manage, you know, for a week or two and then go from there. Um, versus if that same illness had happened here originally, we'd probably, yeah, we'll just watch them, see what happens. But from South Pole... Bad things happen if you leave things alone at the South Pole. Um, last, when, not last year, winter 2016, so you know, middle of June, was the first time they actually did a winter medevac out of the South Pole. And it was literally right in the middle of the winter. Hmm. Longest day, coldest day. And, uh, yeah, it was a bowel obstruction and a heart attack. There were two patients. And wow. uh, Hamish, our doctor there at the time, was sitting on them for almost three weeks before they could get rescued. Just doing his best you know he was using up that btc you know getting you know consults you know every day all day long trying to manage these patients and it was actually kind of heroic uh, kba flew down from canada stopped at utmb picked up all the drugs and the paramedic and then flew down to chile picked up some more stuff and then flew to rothra which is a british base over on the peninsula left the plane waited for the weather waited for the weather waited a week for the weather and then flew to mcmurdo refueled flew to south pole picked up the patient and then flew right on over us at Palmer on the way to Chile. And it was smooth, like what you'd think it, they did it every day. Very cool. That sounds like an intense experience, though. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be a, a movie or TV show about it at some point. Yeah, you're probably right. I could see that already. To highlight some of the difficulties involved in this, the average temperature at South Pole is at negative 49 degrees Celsius. That's cold enough to freeze most aircraft hydraulic systems. So we need a specialized airplane that doesn't rely on hydraulics and has a very simple construction in order to even attempt such a rescue. The aircraft of choice in this case is the Canadian-manufactured Twin Otter, which can operate in temperatures below negative 75 degrees Celsius. However, the Twin Otter has a maximum range of just over 1,250 kilometers. The distance between Rothra and the South Pole, which was the staging base that he was describing, is about 2,500 kilometers. That makes things complicated. They had to modify the aircraft with extra fuel tanks, take out structures that weren't necessary, and ultimately design the aircraft specifically for this mission. And it also had to fly down from Calgary in Canada all the way down to Rothra, which is why they had to make several fuel stops along the way. So once the crew did land, they were 
exhausted and needed to spend the night in South Pole Station before taking off and flying the next morning because fatigue is a major issue for air crews. That'll be a whole other episode. The crew had to place the airplane on a wooden platform to prevent it from freezing to the runway and then in the morning had to spend two hours using specialized air blowers to heat the aircraft up so that it was even capable of taking off again. Um, despite these extreme conditions, the operation went very smoothly and the two patients were evacuated to uh, Punta Arenas in Chile without any difficulty. It was a pretty impressive story, and, I'm, and there are many news articles about it that you can find online if you're curious. Um, from your, uh, so if you have a, let's say we have a hypothetical patient. Okay. Um, South Pole's at high altitude, let's say we got a, a hape case or okay. something. High altitude pulmonary edema. Basically, body fluid accumulating in the lungs because of some of the physiological derangements that happen um, at high altitude. What happens? What do you do to prepare? What do you? What happens? So to prepare, you need. So that's the difficult thing. You don't know what you don't know until you get here, mm. and then you find out all sorts of things. Um, like, why is this happening? How come I don't have this? Or when am I going to get this? Or what do you mean the planes can't fly? Um, it's summertime here, so back in the states, um, the NSF reps are finding this out this week. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the DVs that were supposed to come down. They assume, because we have a flight schedule, that the flights are going to stick to that schedule, but the weather is the biggest determinant of anything down here. Uh, station operations, flights, you know, anything that goes on is all determined by the weather. So we have a flight schedule, so people just assume we're going to come and go and come and go. Um, and that lulls you into a false sense of security, so I can just ship somebody off to Christchurch. Five hours, bam, they'll be in a hospital. Not the mindset you should come down here with. Gotcha. You should come down here a little bit scared the first time, especially if you're going to be a Palmer or Pole because you're pretty isolated and start thinking of worst case scenarios. And then once you've come to peace with those and then realize it's probably not going to happen, but you need to be ready, you can start enjoying life and, you know, stuff like that. But until you get down here, it's hard to realize you don't have, I mean, this hospital is great, but it was built in the seventies hmm. and it's modular sort of. Um, and, it, and it wasn't laid out very well. It, it's excellent for what we need it for, but Everybody hears McMurdo General Hospital before they get here, and they think, "Oh, it's like a big full-service, you know, hospital." No, it's it's us. It's a clinic building. It's a clinic building. Has a few extra capabilities. A few extra capabilities. So you're you get that South Pole evacuation, and yeah, so South Pole evac. So they'll call us. They'll tell us what's going on. Um, they'll put in a medevac notice. Then we have to determine: is it going to be something that we're just going to send straight through? And that'll be really determined by what's going on with the South Pole dock. If he says, hey, we got to get him out of here and get him straight to Christchurch, um, it may be that they send a plane that has a good range and put the, the isopods on them with the extra fuel, and then they fly South Pole, and then they fly straight over to New Zealand. Hmm. Um, if, it's, if they don't have one of those planes available, they're going to have to come here first and refuel. and refuel. And depending on what's going on with the patient, we may have to do some sort of intervention in the you know time that they're on the ground. Because the risk of once they land to refuel is they might not be able to take off because the snow might change, the wind might change, temperature might drop, things, things like that. quickly. Yep. Okay. So that's the biggest thing is just trying to be ready for things that you wouldn't normally think of. Gotcha. Um, everybody's worried about frostbite. It actually doesn't happen as much as everybody thinks. Would you then, in, the, in light of that, for preparation and getting ready, what would you, if somebody wanted to come down here? and they want it to be, hey, I want to be the doc, or I want to be the nurse or the medic on the yeah. station, what would you recommend they get training in? So uh, everybody should do ATLS. That, that's a given. Or ATLS. some some version of that 
training. Mm-hmm. Um, one, it's pretty simple. You've, if you've already done it, it, it's nothing new every time. It's the same thing every time, but it's a good refresher. It's a good practice. Gets you back in the right mindset for thinking what's coming through the door and how am I going to deal with it. Um, I would get your primary skill, care skills up because um, even though most of us are emergency medicine trained, really we need family practice solutions before we do emergency medicine solutions. And we need family practice solutions before we go the other extreme flight medicine solutions where you just sign a waiver and and say you're fine, right? Gotcha. Because um, resources are, are a thing, right? So in the ER, we're going to do everything we can to prove you don't have something bad that's going to kill you or disable you before we send you home. You know this, I know this. We're spending a lot of money and, and time on tests that are not unnecessary, but not necessarily fruitful. They're not the most useful thing, right? efficient thing you could do. They're not efficient because the likelihood is you know what's going on with the patient as soon as you see them. Right. But now we got to do legal medicine. We got to do best practices. Right. Versus, okay, you know what? You got belly pain because you've been throwing up all day because you have a virus that's been going through the station. Right. Right. So, not, you have belly pain. I need to do an ultrasound and do 10 million labs and make sure it's not like an SMA infarct, right? Yeah, Some exactly. Weird... You have to get your, your, op, your obligate CT scan. With... Exactly. And a lollipop. And CT a lollipop. scan and a lollipop. Fentanyl lollipop, of course. Clearly, especially if they're NPO. Well, yeah. And allergic to everything except dilated <laughs> in the direction east. Um, so, yeah, that's the big thing. So some sort of ATLS emergency medicine, ACLS definitely, because everybody thinks that when you get down here, everybody's healthy. So you're walking around, everybody's like, I went through the PQ process. I'm healthy, so everybody else is healthy. The reality is most of the station, probably 70% of them, pretty healthy. There are a lot of waivers. There's a lot of heart disease. There's a lot of people that have had neurologic problems, TIAs in the past, seizure mm-hmm. disorders. There's TB down here, uh, latent TB, not active. Um, there's a, there's HIV, there's hepatitis C, we got everything. If they're stable and they're taking their meds and they're otherwise healthy, they'll come down here. But if you don't realize that, you're not gonna be ready for it. Understood, all right. So if somebody wanted to come down here, how would they, what would, who would they talk to? How would they get in touch with It depends, um, come down at, on the medical side or? Uh, well, I was thinking more on the medical side. Somebody okay, no, no, that's. works in medicine. Yeah, so the the, place to start would just go to the usap.gov website and look to see what's going on. Um, that'll show you the openings for the next couple of years for the different facilities and for the field camps because we still manage the field camps. And uh, um, whether you're a PA nurse practitioner, doctor, um, doesn't matter. That's the place to start. And then uh, you put an application in the UTMB, uh, the website would direct you and then, you know, go from there. It's pretty straightforward process. But you have to be ready. I mean, once you're down here, you're down here. Don't gotcha. don't come down here thinking, oh, well, a few months in, if I don't like it, I'm just going to quit. Yeah, you could do that, but you'd be leaving, you know, a thousand people without, you know, the protection that they think that they have because you just couldn't handle it. Gotcha. Um, and that's happened. Um, we've had doctors quit halfway through a season because it was just too much isolation, not enough actual medicine, because you got to be, you know, self-sufficient on those days that you don't have patients. And it's cold, so you can't go outside a lot. And it's, you know, you look at the mountains and want to go climbing, but you're not allowed to. Mm. Yeah, that's tough. It is a tough one. I'm a climber. It's in my contract. I'm not allowed to climb. They wrote that in your contract. You're not yeah, allowed. so uh, when I was filling out my paperwork for Palmer, um, I asked Jim, hey, if I get a chance, can I go climb some of the rocks near the station? Nope, right into my contract. <sighs> Well, no, it, it's fine. 
Um, I'm, I'm down here to take care of everybody and make sure that we have some sort of response. At this point, we got into a discussion about specific cases that had happened at McMurdo. And as much as I would love to share that information, it violates patient confidentiality. Just because we're in a remote environment does not mean that patient rights go out the window. So I pulled that segment of the interview, but in summary, there are occasionally dramatic cases that do occur involving things like trauma, psychosis, cancer, or severe medical illnesses. But these are unusual. They're so unusual that some of these cases are even written about in the news and you can find them online. But the point of this is that most serious conditions are screened out in a very thorough and very effective review before a person gets anywhere near the ice. So we don't see all that much. I'll turn it back to Chris now. Other interesting cases? Um, not much. I mean, it's normal stuff. You know, there's allergic reaction, anaphylactic reaction, stitches. Nothing, no weird zebras that just no happen zebras. in Antarctica. I mean, we try and screen to prevent that from happening. Okay. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's like NASA for Antarctica, the way we screen. Yeah, you, get, you have to go through all sorts of medical yep. stuff for it. And I guess there's a, so if it's just normal stuff, there's people that don't take meds, people that... Yeah, and that'll get you sent home. People that are that develop new conditions that weren't previously there. Or. No, and that happens, and we'll work with them. So a, a big misconception is there's this big wall that has developed over the last seven, eight years uh, since uh, Martin, you know, Lockheed Martin, now Lighthouse, took over from Raytheon. Raytheon days, anybody can come down here, nobody cared, right? There's screening, quote-unquote. But then we tightened up the process because like they're spending a lot of taxpayer money on these conditions and shipping people home and paying for all sorts of stuff that really could have been avoided. And so the clinic has become kind of, well, you don't need to go to the clinic because you'll get MPQ'd, meaning you'll get sent home. So we've been trying to work on changing that relationship because we want people to come in and see us. But at the same time, if you're down here on a waiver, supposed to be taking certain medications or doing some, some follow-ups to make sure you're safe and stable and you're not doing that, well, you're putting everybody else at risk at that point. And so we tend to come down pretty hard on that. Makes sense. Yeah. If you have latent TB and you stop taking your medicines and you work in the galley, you're going home. That, that would be disturbing. Yep. Especially when you tell everybody that you're going home because, yeah, anyways. <laughs> it's a small town. The rumor mill is active. Yep. The rumor mill in McMurdo is amazing. I found about out about the South Pole Medivac when I was at Palmer from McMurdo before I heard it from my boss. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's how fast things happen here. Um, man, do you have any interaction with the other uh, with the other countries on the on the ice? Um, not here so much. Um, the Italian docs, doctors came through about a month ago when they were going out to Mario Kelly to stand up their Italian base. So we chatted for a little bit. Um, I'm mentoring uh, the Scott-based paramedic, so she's off over there by herself, and so we've been doing some training and coming up with contingency plans for her. That's the New Zealand base. Yep, the New Zealand yeah. base, because um, basically their contingency plan right now is call McMurdo, <laughs> which is not a it's not a bad plan, but she's here until next October, and once the winter sets in, she very well may get stuck with something that's you know critical, and there's no way to get to them, even though it's only three miles away. Yeah. Um, you know, you just can't safely get to the base in Con 1. So we've been started working on that so she can start to relax. Again, she, she same thing. She didn't know what she didn't do, and now she's down now here. She's, now she needs the training. Yep, now she needs some training. Oh, All right. right. Well, thanks for, thanks for going through yeah. all this stuff. Yeah. No.
Fantastic. Yeah, I look forward to continuing to work with you. Once again, my name is Daniel Levin, and thank you for listening to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. A special thanks to our production team, Jeremy Seeker and Emily Stratton, and to Fenella Kennedy for inspiring the podcast itself. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review or send us an email. More information on each episode, including a comments board, is available on the website at explorationmedicine.com. And as always, feel free to reach out with questions, comments, corrections, thoughts, or anything else by emailing podcast at explorationmedicine.com. Thanks for listening, and see you soon.